Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your, your people. Thank you for those who came out this morning, Lord, and uh, we're able to be reminded of your truth, and we're able to sing songs together and encourage each other. Pray that we do the same thing tonight. Pray that we point each other to you, point each other back to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, I do pray just as we're all going through various struggles, uh, different issues that we're all facing, uh, some good, some bad, we do pray that we'll entrust those to you. Pray that you'll be with uh, Cindy and Claire's mom, that the uh, paperwork will go through and that you will be able to bring her to the States and that we could be a blessing to her and she could be a blessing to us. And also for April's relative, that little baby who's in the hospital, I believe with the lung problems, I pray that you'll uh, provide healing for that baby and that it'll be a testimony of your grace. And Lord, we do just pray that everything that we do tonight will bring honor and glory to you. Pray that we'll understand your word clearly and that we'll apply it diligently and that we'll honor Jesus Christ. We do pray this in his name. Amen. I do turn over to Hebrews 7. I get to see if all the kids stay awake on the front row here. We had, I think, 17 kids at my mom's house last night, plus two in the, in the womb. It was, it was a lot of fun. What do you do when you get to a passage in the Bible that doesn't say, love your neighbor, doesn't say, submit to your uh, employer, it doesn't say, love your wife, doesn't have commands like that? Something that we don't see as immediately practical. What do you do when you get to a passage like that? What did Mike do this morning? Get to a passage that's, wow, this isn't going to be as exciting. People are going to have a tendency to nod off. What do you do when you get to a passage like that? You have to cover it. Because here it is in the book of Hebrews for a reason. We've come out of a very, for lack of a better word, exciting passage. Where he called him out. He said, you guys are lazy. And you're listening to the gospel. You guys are immature. You guys need to press on. You guys, if you don't, are going to face destruction. Very intense passage. And now we're just at a very doctrinal section. But we need to look at what it's saying because we've reached the heart of the book of Hebrews. We're right there in the middle in chapter 7. So very doctrinal. So we don't have the option as Christians to say, well, I'm the practical Christian and I don't need the doctrine. And then we don't go to the other side and say, well, I'm a doctrinal Christian and I don't need all that practical stuff because I got my theology. You have to have both together. God doesn't give us the option of choosing one or the other. And they're both there for a reason. So stay with this passage. There's a lot of really tight logic, a lot of really tight reasoning that you really have to look at and pay attention to. But if you do, you will have a great reward at the end of it when you see clearly what God is telling us in his word. Doctrine is the fuel of practice. What's the author of Hebrews' favorite thing to preach? What source material, I should ask it that way? The Bible, but in particular, what Bible did he have? Old Testament, yeah. He is an Old Testament preacher, that's the author of Hebrews. He's more than a writer, more than just a pen pal. He is a, he's a pastor. He's a preacher. And this letter we're reading is really not just a letter, it's a sermon. It's a word of exhortation. And whenever he does preach, he preaches from the Old Testament and brings it out. Sometimes he assumes that we know the context, and he'll just quote a passage really quickly and move on in order to get to his next point. But sometimes he stops. He unfolds the context, shows the history, points out the details, 
and then show why it matters. Sometimes he does that, and that's exactly what we saw last week as we started chapter 7. We covered chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 last week. And what Old Testament text did the author cover in that passage? Or I could ask it this way. How many times is the man Melchizedek mentioned in the Bible? We covered this last week, too. How many places in the Bible is he, is he mentioned? Three, three places. What were those places? Yeah. And then Hebrews, yeah. So Genesis 14, Psalm 110, which has been a very key psalm since chapter 5. And then um, here in chapters 5 through 7 of Hebrews, three places. So what text did he cover in verses 1 through 10 last week? He preached, essentially preached to us Genesis 14, 17 through 20. That, the message we covered last week is an exposition of that text. Chapter 5 and 6, the author said several times, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He stated that several times. And then he goes to chapter 7, and then he goes to the only place in the Bible that talks about any history, any details about this man named Melchizedek, and that was Genesis 14, and he unfolds those details for us. And what do we see was the main point of Melchizedek, of that part of him being mentioned in Genesis 14 and here applied in the book of Hebrews. What was the main point? He's a type. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He was not the Christ, but he pointed ahead to Christ. That was his job. Last week we saw four ways, we'll just review them very briefly, uh, four ways that Melchizedek pointed ahead to Christ. Number one was that he showed us that Christ could be both priest and a king, and how he fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies of one person fulfilling both roles, a priest and king, and that being unheard of in Jewish history. And kings who tried to do that, you see what would happen to them, that they'd be punished for trying to take the role of priest or vice versa. Number two, Melchizedek showed us what kind of, of priest king Christ would be, and that he would be a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And we learn those just by the translation of his name and the translation of the city where he ruled, king of righteousness and king of peace. We saw how you can't have peace without righteousness. And then number three, we saw that Melchizedek shows that Jesus' priesthood faces no earthly restrictions. And if you're looking down at verse three, we covered that last week. And uh, one Bible teacher put it this way. He said, an argument from silence. If you've heard of arguments from silence, something has not been mentioned and you make an argument based on that. Is that very strong if you're not expecting any noise? It's not very strong at all. But if you were getting to a point of an argument and you're expecting to hear something, if you're expecting noise, then that's going to be a very powerful argument from silence if nothing's said. And that's exactly what happened in verse 3. If you're talking to someone with a Jewish background about their priest, about this guy's going to be your priest, they're going to want to know what? What are they going to want to know about this guy? Who's his father? Who's his mother? What's his genealogy? How, how old was he? All these things. There's strict limitations in the Levitical system for who these people could be. But there's no information about Melchizedek on any of those things. So there's no noise. And that's a strong argument saying this is Christ, and he does not have the same earthly restrictions as the Levitical priests did. No earthly restrictions. And number four, last week we saw that Jesus' priesthood is better than the descendants of Abraham, who were the Levites, and even greater than Abraham himself. And we saw the illustration of what? What was the illustration that we saw from Genesis 14? You remember? The tithe. The tithe. 
And actually this week the elders voted on it. We are instituting a new tithe system. It's going to be called the loin tithe. And the way it's going to work is 10% for every child you have or are planning having. And that will help us pay off the building. So uh, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Melchizedek, that was the four lessons we learned last week. He still has two more lessons to teach us. Two more lessons. He's going to teach us about Christ as he's a type of Christ and pointing us ahead to what he's going to do, what Christ has done and what he's going to do. And really we'll see one lesson tonight and the next lesson we'll cover next week. When you get to this kind of text, you don't know what's going to happen because it's, it's very difficult. If I look like I'm in pain up here, it's because I am in pain. But we'll cover the next lesson that he has to teach us. We'll see that in a moment. Now, he covered Genesis 14 in the last verses. What text do you think he's going to cover now? The only other one available, Psalm 110, in particular, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, but that's going to be the text that he's going to exposit for, throughout the rest of chapter 7. Psalm 110, verse 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the text he's going to unfold for us. And as I'm unfolding chapter 7, I'm going to be unfolding both of these texts for you, chapter 7 and Psalm 110, verse 4, if that's not confusing. So what's the remaining lesson he has to teach us? This week we'll see the Levitical priesthood. Number one, the Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. That sounds like, okay, you're going to talk about this for the rest of the night? Yes. This is the point we're going to talk about the rest of this evening. The Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. This is a key argument at the core of the book of Hebrews. Very important argument. We've seen in verses 11 through 19. This would have been a huge statement for someone with a Jewish background. Again, we'll see how this keeps coming up. Very big statement for someone with a Jewish background. You're saying, hey, your Levitical priesthood is going to be replaced. This thing where you've put all of your time, all of your energy, all of your hope, all of your everything, it's going to be replaced. Now think back to the book of Acts. Do you remember what the last eight chapters of the book of Acts are about? They're about Paul, right? But what was Paul going through at the time? Think back to your memory about the book of Acts. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. He was put through Felix, Festus, Herod Agrippa, all kinds of people of trials and going through transporting to Rome because he was still a prisoner and facing shipwreck on the Isle of Malta and on and on and on and he finally gets in prison in Rome. Well, what's, what's all that from? All those eight chapters of Paul's trials, what, where did it come from? You can turn to Acts 21, if, 28 if you would like. I'll go and read it for you. All of Paul's problems that he faced in the last eight chapters of the book of Acts are all based on a false accusation a false accusation from the Jews against Paul. And here was the accusation. This is what they said about Paul. They said, This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place. That was, a, was that a true or false accusation against Paul? Now, he, he had done everything right to the T, even up to that very point in history Paul had. So they're saying... This is what our society is based on, and this guy, Paul, is going against it. So whether it's a false accusation or not, the point is they took this very, very seriously. 
the, the place, which is the temple and its ceremonies and its sacrifices and all the cleansings, all these things, they took it very seriously. So the author of Hebrews is going to say now that the Levitical priesthood needs to be replaced, and that's going to have been a very major stumbling block to these people with a Jewish background. Now it needs to be proved. That point needs to be proved. And maybe even for some of you tonight, this point needs to be proved, that this Levitical priesthood has been replaced. And that's what the author is going to do. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our evening doing, is showing five proofs that the Levitical priesthood needed to be changed. Five proofs, and we're going to see that in these verses. So if you have your handouts, we're only covering under numeral one tonight. But look at number one, or letter A, I should say. The first line of proof is Aaron's imperfection. Aaron's imperfection. In verse 11. Now, we're not just saying that Aaron, just saying that he wasn't a perfect guy. He wasn't all that great of a guy. Is that what we're saying? Not, Not at all. We're saying, I mean, we knew he was born a sinner. We know all this. But what's the point? Let's read verse 11. Now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. For on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Why bring up Aaron at this point? Why would the author of Hebrews bring up Aaron? Simple answer. He and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, they were the first priests to minister under the Old Covenant. The first ordained priests to minister to God's people after Moses had brought the law, the Ten Commandments, to the people of Israel. So he's representing all of the Levitical priests, in other words, here in this verse. He's the representative. Next thing you need to know is that the point is that Aaron's priesthood, as he represented the Levites, his priesthood cannot offer perfection. Aaron's imperfection, that's what we're talking about. The Levitical priesthood was lacking. It was missing something. The priests offered sacrifices for sins. Yes, they did that. But what was the problem? What happened whenever the people sinned the next day? They'd have to offer the sins again. And what happened when the people sinned the next day? have to offer the sins again, over and over again. And then what about the priest's own sin? They'd offer sacrifice for that. Continual sacrifices going on and on and on, year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, constantly going, sacrifices. Hebrews 11.10 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There was something missing in the Levitical priesthood. Now, also, this is a very important point to make, too, because it was popular Jewish belief that the Levitical priesthood could bring perfection. Now, I want to show you a couple quotes here. Popular belief. Anyone heard of Philo? You want to name your son Philo? Not a bad idea. Actually, maybe, maybe not a great idea. Jewish philosopher in the first century, he said this, that called the Levitical priesthood, that perfect priesthood. This is someone who lived during the time of Jesus, this guy Philo. is that perfect priesthood by which mortality is commended to and recognized by God. A perfect system in his mind. A Jewish philosopher said that. Josephus, a Jewish historian living a little bit after, toward the end of the first century and the very beginning of the second century, said this. So, but while we ourselves are persuaded that our law was made agreeably to the will of God, it would be impious for us not to observe it. But listen to this. 
For what is there in it that anybody would change? And what could be invented better than this priesthood? I mean, there, there's nothing else in their mind. And he went on to say this too. He said, what more worthy kind of worship can be paid to God than we pay as the Jews? Where the entire body of the people are prepared for religion, where an extraordinary degree of care is required in the priests, and this is all true, and where the whole government is so ordered as if it were a religious solemnity, what greater worship could they use? In their minds, there's no higher worship than the Levitical system. This was steeped in their minds. This would have to be proved, again, if you're telling this to someone from a Jewish background who's coming to the New Covenant. They say, in their minds, they say, you can't top this. It doesn't get any better than our system. This is the most complete and effective system that anyone could ever design. That was what they had in their mind. But was that true? Testimony of verse 11 is that perfection was not through the Levitical priesthood. Now, the Old Covenant was weak at its most fundamental level, and that was at the level of the people who were designed to make the people right with God, the priests, the mediators. It was flawed at that most very fundamental level. And more on this here in a moment. So let's look at number two. Second proof why the Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. Letter B, David's prophecy. See, David's prophecy, also in verse 11. It says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and then you have that little parenthetical statement, a little statement in the parentheses there, for on the basis of it, the Levitical priesthood, the people receive the law. And then you have verse 12, and those two are bound together. We'll show those here in a moment. And because they anticipate an argument that's going to be made later in verses 18 and 19. So if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, verse 11, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? What need is the question. Why would there be a need? Think about it this way. Who said there was a need? He's saying that there was a need, but who, what, God, what band did God use to say that there was a need to announce this? David. Where? Psalm 110, by the very existence of the verse, Psalm 110, verse 4. So within the documents of the Old Testament, there was an announcement of a need. There was an announcement of something that was lacking. There was something missing in the Old Covenant. I'm not talking about the documents of the Old Testament. The, the, the Old Testament words are perfect. They're inspired by God. But the covenant itself, something was missing. Something was inherently flawed in the priesthood. Now, this is a very interesting argument. David's prophecy of Christ's priesthood being in the order of Melchizedek, and think about this, think about this clearly, closely, the fact that David announced that Christ would be in the priesthood of Melchizedek, not Aaron, the fact that he prophesied that exposes a problem. That prophecy exposes imperfection in the Levitical priesthood. So during the existence and the operation of the Old Covenant, someone announced that there was something better to come. And maybe think about this on a human level. Whoever makes a dinner, spend a lot of time on it. Who likes to cook, by the way? Most people, well, most of you don't. Um, you, cook, you work hard on cooking something, and you bring it to the table. Um, who's your worst critic, usually, when you make something like that? But the answer I want you to say is yourself, right? And as you're eating it, you're thinking, hmm, should have cooked that a little bit longer, or a little bit less, 
or maybe I should put more of this spice in, or maybe I should do a little more of that. You're critiquing it, right? So while you're eating it, while you're using it, while it's an operation in existence, you think, ah, oh, there's something better still out there. You're searching for something better. I believe this is exactly what's happening here. David was alive. He ministered as king during the existence of the Old Covenant. He said, this can't be it. There's got to be something better than this. And through divine revelation, through divine inspiration, David does say, there is another priest coming. He's going to be a king and a priest. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. And he's going to be a priest, not according to Levi, not according to Aaron, but according to Melchizedek. That's the point. This is David's prophecy. Proves it needs to be replaced. Under man's jurisdiction, under, under things that are under our authority, they're going to be inherently flawed, aren't they? That's just how we are. Everything we make is flawed. Buildings are going to crumble over time. Even if you have a, a steel building like we are now, it's eventually it's going to deteriorate, it's going to rust, it's going to fall apart. The schedules that we make at the beginning of our week fall apart. Automobiles fall apart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why are they all flawed? Because we're in charge of them. That's the whole problem. Everything is flawed that we make because of we're the makers. But then the objection comes, and this is it. But didn't God institute the Levites? So how is it flawed if God's the one who made it, if God's the one who instituted it? We'll have to say this too. There are no flaws in God's plan. Everyone agrees with that at this church. I know at least at this church, everyone agrees with that statement that God makes no mistakes. But the old covenant priesthood was inherently imperfect, not because the designer of it had any problems. But to show us something. And what was that? What did God, the designer of the Old Covenant, want to show us? That we are imperfect. That man can't cut it without God's intervention. God deliberately designed the Levitical priesthood to show us that. Before God even gave the Ten Commandments, what did he tell the people? He says in Exodus 19, He said, Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you keep this covenant I'm about to make with you, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did God not know what was going to happen? Did he not realize that all the people were going to rebel? Was he unaware of that? Did he think, okay, well, if they obey this covenant, then great, I'm not going to do anything else after this. This will be plan A, and then hopefully I won't go to plan B. Is that how God designed it? Not a chance. Not a chance. He knew exactly what the Israelites were going to do. He knew they were going to rebel. He knew they were going to disobey. And he knew that we would disobey as well. He knew that the whole human race would fall short of the glory of God. He knew this. So the law and the Levites, they couldn't bring perfection to mankind. They were deliberately designed by God to show human weakness and God's glory. So much so that the greatest king who reigned during the Old Covenant promised that something better was going to come to promise that the Levitical priesthood was inadequate. So backing up, verse 11, how do we answer the question? If the Levitical priesthood could bring perfection, why would David have prophesied about another priesthood? How do we answer it? We say, it didn't bring perfection. Therefore, there needs to be a new priesthood. That's how we need to answer the question of verse 11. So for number three, or letter C, I should say, 
the author is going to point out the obvious, something very obvious. And we need to see why he's pointing out something that's so obvious to everyone who would have read it there in the first century. So the Levitical priesthood needed to be changed is also proved by, letter C, Christ's tribe. Christ's tribe in verses 13 through 14. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah, not Levi. Look at verse 13. For one, the one concerning whom these things are spoken, for talking about Christ, he belongs to another tribe. Has anyone ever officiated at the altar from this person's tribe? No. From which no one has ever officiated at the altar. In verse 14. For it's evident, it's clear, it's plain, that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with, 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 a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. That's obvious. It's perfectly obvious to everyone familiar with Christianity that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, or from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows that no one from Judah ever officiated at the altar. People know this. Everyone knows that the law of Moses never said anything about people from Judah being priests. We know this. It's common knowledge. So why point out the obvious? Three reasons. Three reasons. It would have been shocking, number one. It would have been shocking that there was a priest not from Levi. Someone with an Old Testament background, all they would have known is the Levites being priests. But the author is saying that a person who fulfills David's prophecy is not a Levite. He's a priest, yes, but not from Levi. Some have tried to make it fit, though. They said, this is so unbelievable, I'm going to make it fit. There was a second century document right after the New Testament was all completed. It's called the Testament of Levi. Is Levi here? The Testament of Levi. It's great reading, Levi. You need to check it out later on. Um, a second century document written by a guy who was trying to teach Jews about Christ. And it's, it, it gets kind of fantastic after a while. God showed Levi that he was going to die. And at that point, this is, this is all a story that this is telling. And Levi gathers all his sons around him to give them instructions. And he says, I had a vision where seven men in white clothing stood all around me. And they put all the priestly garments on me. They dressed me up as a priest. And they said this, from henceforth become a priest of the Lord, thou and thy seed forever. This is what the Testament of Levi says. He says, the Messiah will come from Judah. He'll be from there, but he'll still be from the seed of Levi. So people had a really hard time reconciling this. They even tried to make Christ somehow squeeze him in to be from the seed of Levi. This is what Jews in the second century tried to make fit. But does it fit? Can't make it work. And then people wonder, hey, how come these books aren't part of the Bible? (laughs) And then you put up your hands. So again, why point out the obvious number two? It's because of this. It's not a salvage attempt at the Levites. They're not just trying to let's just see if we can put the Levites back together and, and make them work to be our eternal priesthood. Let's just make it work. Let's salvage them. It's not that, but it's a whole new order. So if we could just make a few changes, a few improvements here and there, then we could make it work. But this is a decision every time you buy a new car. You say, how's a car have to do with this? Whenever you, your car gets old, you're making decisions, aren't you? Decisions like, wow, this is out. How much would it cost to fix this? Or you say, what's well, a minor repair? 
I think I can fix that and drive the car for another five, six years. You have the question, is it salvageable or do I need to just junk the whole thing? What was the case with the Levites? Were they salvageable as an eternal priesthood to finally bring full forgiveness for God's people? Were they salvageable? No, they were never designed to do that. We need a new priesthood. Third reason why this is an obvious thing needs to be pointed out is because the scriptures promised that the Messiah would come from Judah. It's a direct promise from God in scripture. What tribe is better, Levi or Judah? I'm glad no one answered. It's a trick question. That's not the point. It's not the point of which tribe is better. It's the question of what promise did God make? And is he fulfilling it? That's the whole question we're trying to ask. Judah was the tribe with a direct messianic promise, not Levi. Jacob, all the way back in Genesis 49, you don't turn there, he prophesied over his son Judah. He said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the promise to Judah. And then fast forwarding in time to when King David lived in 2 Samuel 7. God told David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Judah had this promise. Now going through David. Psalm 132, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body. I will set upon your throne. This is God's promise to David and to Judah. Jeremiah 33, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And you see this fulfilled in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. These are the promises that God made directly to the tribe of Judah, and then to the Christ. So again, we're talking about why the Levitical priesthood needed to be changed, needed to be replaced. Let's look at the fourth proof. Letter D. Christ's power. Christ's power in verses 15 through 17. Read those verses with me. It says, and this is clearer still. In other words, our whole point about the inadequacy of the Levitical system, that it needed to be changed, our whole point now is even being made more clear. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I want you to see a few things in this verses. Number one is clarity. Clarity. The author of Hebrews, what people think of the author of the book of Hebrews is a very difficult book to study. Is that true? It can be very difficult at times, but at the same time, the author is constantly trying to make things really clear to the people he's preaching to. Clarity. The author never wants what he's saying to be a puzzle. He's never trying to catch them in some kind of riddle and say, figure it out on your own. He's always trying to make this very clear. That's what he's doing for us today. And this is by way of application for us. Clarity in the Christian life, something that God is 
showing us all over Scripture is something that's also very rare in the church. All kinds of fuzziness. People, am I really saved? Is, 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 am I really going to go to heaven when I die? And can I really have this eternal security, this assurance that people talk about? And then they go on, sometimes months, weeks, and sometimes even into years, wondering, without clarity. But God promises his people clarity, all for, through faith in Christ, because certainty is what this book is offering to us. Certainty, actual certainty about what Christ has done. I want to make this even more clear. Now, what's even more clear? What point is even more clear? Negatively, Christ did not have to meet any physical requirements to become a high priest. That's what Mel Kizedek was pointing to. The problem, what was the problem with the Levites? What was the main problem with the Levites? They kept dying. One guy would serve and he would die. Another guy would serve and he would die. And they kept dying and dying and dying. But positively, why is this even more clear? Why is Christ as the solution? Why is that even more clear? It's because he met a much greater requirement than some kind of physical requirement. He had the power of an indestructible life. We'll talk about more, much more uh, next week as we finish up chapter 7. But Christ's priesthood is based on the power of an indestructible life. Indestructible. It can't be dissolved. It can't be broken up. It's invincible. That's what Christ has. That's what he has. He's, the grave could not hold Christ. And this is what lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel, of the biblical gospel. Without the resurrection, what would Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be? Interesting biographies. That's all they would be. What would the book of Acts be without the resurrection? There would be no book of Acts. This was the message that the apostles preached. That's what they spread throughout the known world at the time because they were preaching a risen Christ, someone whom the grave could no longer hold, the power of an indestructible life. Message of forgiveness of sins through Christ because he was alive. And finally, for these verses, I want you to see last letter E, Moses' weakness. We're going to go back to verses 11 and 12 and then jump back to verses 18 through 19, the first part of verse 19. And when we say Moses, what are we talking about? Talking about the man? That he was just a weak guy, he couldn't really bench press much or couldn't make curls. No, we're talking about the law of Moses. We're talking about the law associated with his name. So we skip verse 11, and, or part of verse 11 and, and verse 12. Let's go back to them real quick. I want you to follow the reasoning of the author as we close here. The priesthood was bound up together with the law of Moses. They were like hand and glove. They, they belonged together. I'm finishing on a, a tough note to really think through. So I know it's we're at the end of the hour, but really try to concentrate and see his reasoning. The priesthood was bound up together with the law of Moses. Look back at verse 11. We'll look at that parenthetical statement. It says, on the basis of it. And what's it? The basis of it? Ah, so I want you to track with me. On the basis of it, talking about the Levitical priesthood. On the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. The point I'm making is that these are bound together. I want you to think about this. What is the law without the priesthood? What's the priesthood without the law? Can't have one without the other. How much of the first five books of the Bible is dedicated to information about the priesthood? Think about that. Turn to Exodus. You don't have to turn to a specific page. 
But just think through it. And if this won't work with you have a phone, you have to actually flip the pages. But God gives the Ten Commandments to, to Moses in Exodus 20, right? Then he gives some other miscellaneous commands up through chapter 23. And then they affirm their covenant with God in chapter 24, okay? What are the next seven chapters about in the book of Exodus? You guessed it, about the priesthood, about the tabernacle, about the sacrifices, about the ceremonies. Seven chapters. Then you have a break for a narrative in chapters 32 through 34. Then what's after that? The tabernacle, the priesthood, the ceremonies, the sacrifices. From chapter 35 all the way to the very end of the book, the priesthood. The law is bound up with the priesthood. And then what happens after Exodus? You have a whole book dedicated to the the Levites, to the priesthood, to the whole Levitical system. The book that no one finishes reading. Then you see more of this information scattered throughout Numbers and throughout Deuteronomy. Then over time, the priesthood becomes corrupt. And then over time, you have King Hezekiah institute reforms. And what's one of the very first things he does in those reforms? Who does he call or text? The Levites. The Levites, get back in here. We're going to set you guys back up. This is the basis of our law. We have to have a priesthood going to be fulfilling the Old Covenant. These are bound together. You have to have both. The Old Covenant was nothing without the priesthood. And notice in verse 12, when the priesthood is changed, you can't hang on to its law. When the Levitical priesthood is changed, you can't hang on to the Levite's law. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. It's easy to say, well, aren't there three parts to the law? What were those three parts that people talk about? Civil... I'm really, really testing your uh, skills. <laughs> if you can guess these right now, it's 7 o'clock on Sunday night, then you don't have to come to church. Uh, ceremonial, civil, and moral. Okay, I, t- I take it back what I said. It's true. Do you see those different aspects of the law? You do see those. But where does God tell us that we can break them apart? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't say that. If the priesthood goes, the whole thing has to go. To make this even more clear, the text says that there has been a setting aside of the law. Verse 18, we're skipping back down to verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment. We'll get to the other hand next week. It's no longer recognized as valid. It's annulled. It's removed. Not just the priesthood, but the law itself. This is a very serious business, a very big deal to set aside the law of Moses. You have the same exact word, the setting aside. Where else do you see that in the New Testament? You have it in Hebrews 28. Listen to this, or Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside, same word, the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Who did Jesus rebuke for setting aside the law of Moses? The scribes and the Pharisees, Mark 7. Said he was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Same word. If you didn't like the law, could you just say, Ah, I'll just set it over here and not worry about it? Is that what you do with the law? Could you do that with God's law? Or you say, I got a better way of doing things, I'm just going to put this over here? Didn't work that way. So, why set it aside? How could you set it aside? Look at verse 18 again under verse 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, talking about the old covenant, because of its what? Weakness and uselessness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. Those are harsh words, aren't they? Weakness, uselessness. Five books of the Bible dedicated to the institution of the Old Covenant. Now the author of Hebrews is saying weak, useless. It's tough language. Fortunately, I looked it up in Greek, and you know what I found? It means weak and useless. Same thing. The law was ineffective. But didn't Paul say that the law was holy and righteous and good? Didn't Paul say that? We're talking about a contradiction now? Paul didn't write Hebrews? No, we're not saying there's a contradiction. The law is perfect. I'm just going to ask the kids a question. If you look in a mirror, kids, you see problems with your hair and your teeth. I'm not saying any names. Can that mirror reach out and fix those problems? Can the mirror brush your hair? Can the mirror brush your teeth? No, that'd be silly, wouldn't it? What about the law? The law, we look into it. It's a mirror. It just shows us what's wrong. It shows a lot that's wrong. It is a perfect standard, and it shows that we have not reached it. Paul says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, the law couldn't do it, but who could? God did. How did he do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul says the same type of thing in Galatians 3. The law, why was it added? Because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law was only, according to Hebrews, a shadow of the good thing to come, but it was only a shadow of the real thing. That's what the law was. It couldn't all, it could only do is, or all it could do is point out imperfection. All it could do is show you that you've fallen short of God's standard. It showed us that we are not allowed in his presence unless it's for judgment showed us that we could not meet man's greatest need of access to God. We couldn't do it. simple point here is that the priesthood needed to be replaced because its law was also ineffective. That's the fifth point we looked at. It could not bring us to God. And you see that at the very end of verse 19. We didn't read it yet, but it says, On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we do what? We draw near to God. That's what we're going to talk about next week. I'll leave you with a John Newton hymn that no one ever sings, but we should very soon. Let us love and sing and wonder. Here's how the first verse goes. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, again, we say we love you because you expose our sin. That makes us uncomfortable. It makes us sad. It depresses us. I pray, the Lord, that we would not continue in that depression because I pray that we would see what Christ has done for us. I pray that we would see it with great clarity. That's what you offer us in your word. The work of Christ is certain. It's sure. It happened. We have to put our faith in it in order to have true forgiveness of sins, in order to have confidence, in order to have perseverance in this scary and dangerous world. Pray, Lord, that we would help us. you'd help us to worship you. I pray that we would love and sing and wonder because of what Christ has done for us. Pray this in his name. Amen.